Well, good morning, everybody. Just grateful for the cooler weather and the blessing of rain. Amen. We will continue our series this morning, as Pastor Letitia said earlier, where we've been looking at this. The series is called Free Indeed. And it's this idea of what does it mean and how does it, our freedom in Christ work itself out. And as I was uh, considering the topic for this morning, the topic this morning is to be free from the law. Uh, one of the ways I uh, would like to introduce it is just that, you know, if the world we live in has many causes, many battles for freedom. In the history of our own country, we've had a battle for political freedom. There's a battle for economic freedom. If we go more globally, there's battle for equality in many areas, battle for self-determination and, and existence, <clears throat> excuse me, in many countries of the world. The battle for freedom is probably quite common in, the human, in human history and in human experience. And in each of our own lives, we also face a battle for freedom. And as Pastor Louis over the last number of weeks has explained to us, it's just because we're trapped in sin, because in our natures we alienated ourselves from God, one of the fundamental battles you and I have to face as we pursue this journey towards becoming like Jesus is the battle to become free from sin and free from the effects of sin in our lives. And so while there's many important things we can advocate for freedom for, in our personal journeys, in our journeys as a community together that's trying to follow Jesus and discover how he wants us to live for him and who he would want us to be, in the world that we find ourselves in today, we need to uh, also realize that we are in the, on this battle, on this journey to become free from sin. Now, we're going to spend some time this morning in the book of Galatians. So if you have a device or a Bible, you're really welcome to turn there. We're going to be in chapter 5. In fact, this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to be uh, looking at Galatians chapter 5. It's a very important chapter in the New Testament where Paul addresses this topic of freedom. I think in Paul's life, he had many causes, many things he fought for, but one of the main causes that he spent a lot of time at least writing about in the book of Galatians and in the book of Romans was this cause about being free from the law, because when you're free from the law, you can be free indeed, and that's part of Paul's argument. And so God had used Paul to plant many churches across the Roman Empire, uh, and he'd kind of become known as the apostle to the Gentiles. The Gentiles just simply being those people who'd come to faith in Christ who were non-Jewish. Anybody the Jews regarded, anybody who wasn't Jewish, they called them a Gentile. And Paul's, the majority of his work had been working in the non-Jewish areas. Now, most of his churches had people that came from the Jewish faith. He used to always go preach in the synagogues first, and then he would take the gospel to the non-Jewish people in the city. And so you had this blend of people in the churches from a Jewish background and then from a non-Jewish background, and they were all coming together to learn what it meant to be a community of faith centered around Jesus. Now, what started happening at some stage as Paul had preached this gospel in many places and planted many churches is there were a group of false teachers that probably came from, well, as best as we can discern, came from a Jewish background. And these Jewish false teachers would go to these churches that Paul had planted, and they had an interesting angle on what it would mean to be a real Christian or to be a proper follower of Jesus. You see, for these and other Jewish, particularly for these false teachers, let me focus on them. For centuries, their understanding, their, everything they knew from their culture, everything they knew from the, all the generations that have gone before them was that if you want to be in right relationship with God, you do that in terms of the law of Moses, the Mosaic law. You have to follow this 
set of rules in this covenant. You have to stand in this way because if you're in this place, then you are right with God. Okay, and that's a very important way to understand them. And so some of them heard the message of Jesus and they came to a real faith. This is important, a real faith in Jesus. They understood that Jesus had paid the price for their sins. They understood what Jesus had accomplished on the cross. But as they translated that into how do we now live as a disciple of Jesus, how do I live as a follower of Jesus, what happened is this concepts from their past, this framework from their past around the Mosaic law started creeping back in and they said some things like this. If you want to be a real Christian, if you really want to you know, get it right with God, you need faith in Jesus plus certain elements of the Old Testament law. And I think they picked certain elements of it out, at least as we can deduce from Galatians and probably some clues in the book of Romans as well, that they would say you need to believe in Jesus, but you need this and this. And so some scholars, and I like the language, it says that they, they preached a Jesus plus gospel. It's faith in Jesus plus elements of the Mosaic law, plus certain things that you, you need to follow and you need to do to be a good Christian. And this, as these false teachers come into the churches in Galatia, this elicits a very strong response from Paul. In fact, in some of the chapters in this book, it's the most aggressive he gets, like really aggressive, like almost unchristian aggressive. If we heard somebody say stuff like he said, we would go, really? Okay, he gets very against this, very animated in his writing about this because he understands the danger of a Jesus plus gospel. We're gonna read some words that it can alienate you from Christ. It can make the work of Christ of no avail, no effect in your life. And Paul sees this very clearly. So we're gonna get into Galatians 5 now, just with that little bit of a framework. I wanna read the first six verses. We're also gonna look at some verses a little bit later from verse 13 onwards. But I'd like to read the verse six, first six verses together just so that we get a feel for the passage, and then I'm going to just go through and probably do a bit of a running commentary as we go through the different verses. So Paul has argued for the supremacy of faith so far in the book of Galatians and how important it is to believe in faith. And then he says this, he writes this, he says, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare that every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is required to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ and you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now, before we get into some of the details of the text, I just want to explain one of the concepts in verse 4. It says, those who are trying to be justified by the law. And I want to talk just a little bit about that word justified so that when we read the passage later, we have a feel for what it means. So when we come to faith in Jesus, when we come to the foot of the cross and we put our faith in Jesus, we repent of our sins. There's, if we read some of the things in the New Testament, Book of Romans and things, there's a lot that happens. It's like there's the work of God that is broad and deep and probably beyond what we can properly actually comprehend, at least as I've read theology, it's like it gets quite intense. 
But there's this work of God that, that happens uh, where he, so for example, we get saved. He forgives us of our sins. He cleanses us from unrighteousness. He gives us his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes us and baptizes us into the body of Christ. Uh, Romans teaches that we're adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. There's a lot that happens when we pray this prayer of repentance. But one of the things that happens is that God justifies us. Now, it's a legal term. It's a legal word that was used in the courts of the day. And essentially, it's when a judge would pronounce a sentence. A judge would pronounce you usually not guilty. But I found the, the definition by a scholar, a theologian called Wayne Grudem, quite helpful to understand it. And so that would come up. It's going to come up on the screens uh, shortly. But Wayne Grudem describes this idea of justification as follows. He says, it's an instantaneous legal act of God. So it's like God is sitting as the judge. And it happens when he, he thinks it and then he declares it. And when he declares it, it's instantaneous. It happens in our lives. Okay, so it's an instantaneous legal act of God in which firstly, he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness belonging to us. This is very important. When we get saved, God doesn't go, well, I'm just going to pretend that didn't happen. He doesn't say, I'm just, well, it's under the blood and it's, it's like it never happened. No, it is under the blood of Jesus. But he says, it's more than that, he says, yes, you did sin. Yes, you are guilty. And Pastor Louis helped us understand that so clearly. We're, so, we're guilty before God. But because of what Jesus has done, God looks at us and he goes, I'm not seeing you as guilty. I'm seeing you as being in the righteousness of Christ. You're in Christ. You're covered by the blood of Christ. Your sins are paid for by what Jesus did on the cross. So God thinks of our sins as forgiven. And the righteousness in Christ belongs to us. And then, part two, God declares us to be righteous in his sight. And it's that declaration that sparks, that changes our nature, that changes who we are, that brings us to salvation. Because you see, when God thinks something and then he declares it, then it is so. So he thinks of our sins as forgiven. We're standing in Christ. And then he says, you are not guilty. One of the other scholars, his name's Donald Guthrie, says, you're guilty but pardoned. And he says, that's the central idea of justification. Simply put, and if you've been around church a while, you might have heard it said this way, justification is when God says, it's just as if I never sinned. Now, it's a little, it's quite simplistic, that understanding. But it's when we repent, when we turn to Christ, God pronounces and he says, it's going to be in your life like you've never sinned because of what Jesus has done for you. This was the fundamental issue that people like Martin Luther, anyone heard of Martin Luther? Again, at the South Church, there were more people than, no, okay. Martin Luther lived in the uh, 1500s, 1500s, I think. He was one of the great voices of, around the Protestant Reformation that protested against the way the church was being done at that time and the rules and the rituals that they put in place as a way to get to Jesus. And Luther knew in his personal life, if you read his story, that he was not in right standing with God. He knew he wasn't in right relationship with God. He didn't know what it meant to be righteous before God. And he wrestled with us. And he read books like Galatians and Romans. And as he was engaging with the text that we can read and access today, God gave him a revelation. God gave him an understanding. That the only way you come into right relationship with God is when you put your faith in him. So one of the famous sayings around Luther was, or the Protestant Reformation was, it's only by faith. Faith alone justifies me. Faith alone brings me to a place where God says, it's just as if you've never sinned. You're not guilty in that sense. 
If you're familiar with John and Charles Wesley, the founders of the Methodist movement, if you read their stories, this was the same question they wrestled with. How do I stand in right relationship with God? And what was clear in the scriptures is that it's by faith. So we justified by faith. Okay, back to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. I like to think of Galatians as the Christian Freedom Charter. Freedom Charter is a document in the history of our nation which had profound effects. It painted a picture of what it would look like to have a free and a more equitable society. And in Galatians 5, Paul gets to this place where he says, this is what Christian freedom looks like. This is how Christian freedom works. And so he starts in 5.1 and he says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So it's a little bit circular, but Jesus has set you free for freedom. And he unpacks in this chapter what that freedom looks like and what that freedom means for us. If we carry on in verse 1, it says, Paul says, Stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I don't know if you were ever a child and your parents did that. I mark, your, mark my words. or I'm telling you, listen to me now. Paul's being really emphatic. Listen to me carefully, Paul says. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. It's interesting that he starts. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers. He's not writing to unbelievers to tell them how to come to faith in Jesus, how to get right to Jesus. He's writing to Christians and he says, it's really important that you stand firm. Because even for Christians, there's this danger that we come to faith in Jesus, but then we go back to legalistic rule keeping and religious rituals as a means, primary means of engaging and relating to God. He warns the Christians, don't go back to the law. The yoke of slavery that Paul refers to in this passage, in, the, in what he's writing about in the whole book, is the Mosaic law, because that's what the false teachers were teaching. They were teaching, you have to go back and adopt some aspects of the Mosaic law, of the Jewish law. And so when he, it's interesting that as a Pharisee, a man who spent years of his life studying and perfecting and being zealous for the law, he writes about this law and he says, it's a yoke of slavery. It doesn't produce freedom, it produces bondage. And he warns Christian believers, people who are already in faith in Christ, don't go back to that. Don't fall back into that system, that way of trying to stand in right relationship with God. Now, in the Mosaic law, the sign of the covenant, the thing that meant that you adopted this covenant, if you were male, you were circumcised. And the men, yeah, don't get all uncomfortable now. Okay. But the sign of the covenant was circumcision. And so when Paul writes in this passage around this idea of being, circum- of being circumcised, it's just his way of saying that you're adopting the old covenant. You're saying, yes, I agree with this. This is a way to live and to relate with God. This is the way I stand in right with God. So the circumcision becomes the sign of this covenant. And so when he talks about that, that's just simply what he's referring to. Now, in this instance, in the book of Galatians, Paul is specifically referring to the Mosaic law. But I think if we apply the text today and we think of the text today, it's valid to say that that can refer to any system of uh, religious rule-keeping, religious works-based system that has this idea that if you keep these rules, you'll be in right relationship with God as a primary way to relate to God. So whether it's the Mosaic Law or any other system, even Christian legalism, be careful that you don't fall under the yoke again of Christian legalism as well. And the reason Paul is so strong about this, whenever you exert self-effort, 
and you try and, as Pastor Louis shared with us so eloquently, whenever you try and fix your sin yourself, you cannot get it right. It's fundamentally impossible. And Paul warns the Galatians, and he repeats this warning, he repeats these ideas in the next paragraph. He warns them that there's really dire consequences. Christ, if you do this, if you adopt this system, it's like whatever Jesus did meant nothing. Christ will be of no value to you at all. If you adopt the rules and the rituals and the system, Christ will be of no value to you at all. It's really serious what Paul is saying here. He goes on in verse 3 and 4. Again, he repeats for emphasis to make sure that they understand how important this is. He says, again, I declare that every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is required to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law, to stand in right relationship with God by the law, you've been alienated from Christ and you've fallen away from grace. Now in this passage, Paul alludes these verses to two ways of justification, two means that people use to try and get into right relationship with God, to come to that place where God says to them, not guilty. The first way that he speaks to which he's been speaking about is the way of the Mosaic law, the way of rule-keeping, the way of self-effort, religious self-effort, where I will work, and, and, and if I can just tick all the boxes, if I can just, you know, I don't swear, I don't chew, and I don't spit, and I don't go with girls who do, I think is the old saying. It's very old, okay? It's good advice, by the way, young people. Okay, but if you have this list of rules that you try and keep, you don't do this, you don't do that, and if you can tick every box, and then you come to church on a Sunday because that's what good Christians do, then I'm okay with Jesus. Then I'm in right relationship with Jesus. That's what the Mosaic Law says. If I can keep all the rules. Now what Paul argues in another place earlier in chapters, first actually four chapters of the book, he says, those Jewish people like Paul and Peter who lived their whole lives in this system, their whole lives trying to tick all the boxes and keep all the rules, lived their whole lives there. They knew from their lived experience. He actually writes, it says, we who are Jews know that you cannot attain righteousness by the law. You cannot meet God's standard by the law. So whenever it's religious self-effort, and it, the challenge with that is it's always based on your own works. It's always based on what you do. It's very important we understand Paul's principle here is that you, if you adopt part of the law, you're obligated to the whole. So you can't just go, well, I like keeping the Sabbath or uh, I do not steal. If you adopt part of the law, if I have not st stolen, then I'm in right relationship with God. If that's your means, if that's the, the peg that you've planted in the ground, what Paul is saying, actually, you can't just pick part. It's all or nothing. And what their life experience and the Jewish history told us, our history tells us is you cannot get into right relationship with God by trying to keep the rules. You cannot do it because it's based on your own effort and on your own work. So what we do, uh, you don't do this. I've just heard of people that do this. When we, when we live in this place, when we're trying to obey the rules and we move into the space of legalism, how do you know when you're good enough? How do you know that, okay, now God's going to say, all right, today is a good day? Or how do you know when you get to that place? Because you see, and so what we start doing is we start comparing ourselves with one another. Well, we don't. Other people do. Other people start comparing themselves with one another. And as long as I'm just a little bit better, if I keep more rules, if I'm a little bit more holy, I attend church more often, 
I don't go to movies on Saturday night, or I don't do this, or I don't do that, and I don't get involved with this. As long as I'm just a little bit better than you, then I start feeling good about myself, and then I must be okay with God. The problem is, other people aren't the standard. God's perfection is the standard, and that's where he teaches us that you will always miss the mark. You will always fall short. Keeping the rules cannot get you into right relationship with God because you have a sinful nature and you will fail and you will break the rules. You're not good enough. No matter how disciplined you are, no matter how strong-willed you are, you will break the rule even if it is do not be proud. And then you are guilty. And so that's the one way that I think all of us have dabbled with this. Some of us have tried to live with it. If I can just do everything right, I'll be okay with God. But Paul, in these verses, also says, you've been alienated. If you do that, you're alienated from Christ. You've set aside Christ. And you have, uh, let me get the wording right, and you have fallen away from grace. Because that is the second way that you can come into right relationship with God. The second space where you can come and you can say, where God can say, you are not guilty. And that's the way of grace and faith. The way of grace and faith, and that's what Paul argues so persuasively in Galatians and Romans, is that is the only way to get into right relationship with God. Remember, grace is getting what you do not deserve. Grace is when you come to the foot of the cross and you confess your sins and you put your faith in Jesus. He justifies you, he saves you, he adopts you, he gives you his Holy Spirit. You're getting all those things that you do not deserve just because you've decided that I will put my faith in what Jesus has done. Not in my own self-effort, not in my own rule-keeping, not in my own strength and effort, but in what Jesus has done. So the way of grace and faith is based on the works of Jesus and his righteousness. And as I accept that, God gives me his Holy Spirit and he starts empowering me, enabling me to live the life that he intended me to live. Please note again, that's a repetition of ideas. If you want to choose rule-keeping and religious self-effort as your means of trying to get into right relationship with God, you are setting yourself apart from Christ. You are falling away from grace. This is very very serious. And that is why in this letter, Paul writes with so much passion, so much conviction, so much strength as he goes forward. He goes on and he introduces this idea in verse 5 and 6. It is through the Spirit. So what happens when God has justified me? What happens when God has pronounced me righteous? It's then you start living through the Spirit. It is through the Spirit that we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So now I'm justified. I've come to faith in Christ. He has justified me. He gives me his Holy Spirit. And as I live my life, continually putting my faith in Jesus, I live with hope. Because one day, I will fully realize what it means to be righteous. Now I am declared righteous. And I'm becoming more righteous, righteous simply here being the right, in right relationship, right standing with God. And as I live, I become more righteous. I have a righteousness that's given to me when I get saved. But one day when Jesus comes back, when the kingdom of God gets established, I live in the fullness of that righteousness. I live, with, I live in the perfect world. I live in the world without sin, where I'm not wrestling and battling to overcome sin all the time. I live and I stand in the righteousness 
of God. So that is my hope, that one day I will be fully righteous. But the Holy Spirit sustains us for that. And then Paul says this interesting thing. The only thing that then counts is faith expressing itself through love. Some people think, you know there's some people, not us, okay? Some people think that if I just believe in Jesus, you know, I've said the sinner's prayer, I've confessed my sins, I believe that Jesus did something significant and important on the cross. Tick that box, I'm going to heaven, and then I can live like however I want. But Paul here very clearly says that what counts is when you have faith, I've put my faith in Jesus, I'm now justified, I'm pronounced there, then what starts happening in my life is I start to learn to live a life of love. Faith gets expressed in love. Now, in the verses that Apostle Letzola is going to preach on next week, Paul actually takes that on and he says, how do you live this, faith of, uh, this life of love expressing itself through faith? And the language Paul uses then is you need to be led by the Spirit. You need to walk in the Spirit. But that's chapter 2, and you have to come back next week for that. But for today, I'm just laying the foundation for that. What counts is faith expressing itself in love. Now that I am justified, how do I live? And already here, Paul's talking about freedom. Verse 1, he's going to come back to it now in verse 13. Freedom implies responsibility. Freedom from sin, freedom from guilt before God, the freedom of going, I am a son, I am a daughter of God, I'm pronounced righteous, I have his Holy Spirit in me. That freedom has responsibility. Freedom is not absent ever of responsibility as we live. And in the next paragraph, which we're not going to look at today, Paul makes a very urgent personal appeal to the Galatians. He says, please, don't do this. And then he gets really angry with the false teachers and tells them to do stuff Christians shouldn't tell people to do. And you can read that, adults at home, and explain it to your children. But I want to pick up at verse 13, because Paul transitions now in the chapter, and he started by saying we're free but now that I have, now that I'm justified, now that I'm right with God, how do I live? What, what, what becomes the governing principle of my life? How do, what is the primary basis from which I approach my relationship with God, with life, and with others? What becomes my, what governs my behavior? And he starts picking this up in verse 13, 14, and 15, and as I said in the rest of the chapter, which we'll we'll deal with next week, but this, for today we're going to look at verse 13, 14, and 15. Let's look at verse 13. Paul says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Again, repeats from verse 1. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Very important, when Paul uses the word flesh here, he doesn't mean your body, it's included, but he means your sinful nature. You cannot use your freedom responsibly as a Christian. In the Christian Freedom Charter, an appropriate use of freedom is not to feed your sinful nature. Because what also some people, remember those some people, what they do is they say that now that I've got faith in Jesus, it doesn't really matter how I live my life. And so, you know, Jesus doesn't mind if I do this, or Jesus doesn't mind if I do that because I can quickly go and ask for forgiveness. And it's true, if your repentance is sincere, he will forgive you. But the paradigm is wrong. The angle is wrong. This word indulge, Paul starts speaking now to our purpose of freedom. Maybe before I talk about indulge, let me maybe explain this to you. 
One of the things the false teachers had to do is they had to discredit Paul to discredit his message. It's always a great tactic, by the way. If, if someone's right and you know it and you don't admit you're wrong, just explain why they're a bad person. So you disqualify the messenger if you can't handle the message. So they couldn't handle Paul's message, so they try and disqualify him. And one of the things they said to him, the problem, Paul, with your gospel, the problem with this faith-only message that you preach, the problem with this thing that you say that if I've got faith, it's enough, is that this faith-only gospel feeds the flesh. It feeds the sinful nature because there's no rules. Because they were dealing with a real problem. So in the first century church, as I've mentioned, you had people from a Jewish background coming in, people from a Gentile background, Gentile background coming in. Now in general, those coming from the Jewish background would have had a moral framework because they had the Old Testament law. They kind of knew how to live in ways that pleased God and ways that didn't. They had certain rules and things like that that they knew, but they knew that those living in that way pleased God. So they had a reference point. Now they come into church with people from a very different background. Now some of the Gentiles who would come in, and remember Gentiles could be Greeks, Romans, Scythians, slaves, free, Parthians, anybody, anybody who was non-Jewish. They have people coming in from different backgrounds, cultural and religious. Now some of those Gentiles that were coming in would have also been moral people. They would have kind of known what's a good way to behave, what is proper. They would have been good people. But others, they'd lived their lives in such a way that things that their generations and their practice of life had taught them for centuries were fine, were not fine anymore, but they didn't know that. So part of the concern of these Jewish legalists, these false legalist teachers, was that, but now these people come to faith and God says they're not guilty, but look at how they live. You know, they're still engaged, they're still going to the temples and they're still going to the prostitutes and they're lying and they're cheating and they're stealing and they say they're Christians. This, your gospel doesn't work, Paul. This faith only thing just feeds the flesh. And Paul argues a very radical thing here. He argues and he says, you don't stop sinning, you don't stop the sinful nature by imposing rules on people. You stop the sinful nature by focusing on faith expressing itself through love which practically means you're led by the Spirit, which is what he further unpacks in the passage. And so he says you cannot use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. You cannot say I'm right with God and it doesn't matter how I live. Now this word in the Greek, I don't remember what it is, but I remember what it means. It's the word that's translated indulge. It's an interesting word. It comes from a military context in the original language. And the word was used to speak of, you know when you did a military campaign and you're invading a territory, you would establish a forward base of operations. You establish a base of operations which was secure, and then from that base you would go and wage your battles. You would fight. So that base became like a springboard to your next battle, to your next war. And this word indulge was used in that context. You cannot use your freedom as a base of operations for sin. You cannot say, I'm free in Jesus, Jesus doesn't mind, and use it as a springboard to engage in any manner of sin. That's not the purpose of it. Freedom implies responsibility, not indulgence. Your freedom cannot be a base of operations in the battle against the flesh. In this war we are waging, we're fighting for freedom against our sinful nature. We're fighting for freedom to overcome our sin. In this war we are waging against our sinful nature, Freedom cannot become a springboard that allows sin to grow in our lives, is what Paul argues here. Instead, 
You use, need to use your freedom to serve one another in love with humility. Verse 14 and 15 in Galatians 5. For the entire law is summed up with this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Paul writes to this Christian community in Galatia. Well, there's a number of churches there. I think what Paul is trying to say is, so the Jewish, these false teachers were arguing you have to keep the law. And he says, well, actually, if you want to fulfill the law, there's really one thing you need to focus on. Now, he kind of half quotes Jesus. Remember when Jesus was asked, how do you fulfill the law? What's the most important thing? He said, you love God and you love your neighbor. So I think for Paul, the loving God part's implied. He's not saying that doesn't count. But what he focuses on here, he says, if you really want to fulfill the law in relation to overcoming sin, if you really want to get things right in relation to overcome the sinful nature, just focus on one thing. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. I think it works a little bit this way. I can live my life trying to avoid sin. I'm not going to do this, and I mustn't do that. And I, and I focus on that, and, and if I can get this right, then Jesus will love me. Or I can live my life and say, I'm going to focus on loving God and loving people. And I'm going to be so busy letting my faith express itself through love, so busy loving others that I don't have time for sin. Uh, let me qualify what I say because I want to be a little bit balanced here. I do think there's parts of our Christian journey and parts of our discipleship lives where we need boundaries. There's some of us that need to go, I do not watch that channel. I do not go to that place. And it's a law in your life because it protects you from sin. What Paul is saying is that that thing can't be the primary thing of how you relate to God. Because you need to move from law to faith. So in different aspects of my life, I need boundaries to go, I'm not going there. If you're young and you're dating and you're single, nothing good happens when you're alone after 11 o'clock at night. It's a law. It's the 11th commandment. It's a good law. Now, I can live my life. Yeah, parents, take note. Okay. Now, I can live my life going, there's this rule, and this is the rule that makes me a good Christian. If I do this, I'm okay with Jesus. That's not how you live your Christian life. Your Christian life is, I'm going to love my neighbor. And by the way, if you love your neighbor, let me pick on the men, you won't spend alone time alone with her after 11 o'clock at night doing things you shouldn't do because you love your neighbor. Godly love. Okay? Sorry, there's young people here. I'm sure there's young people there too. I'm just picking. No, no shade. Okay? So, I focus my life on loving others. Then I won't cheat, steal, deceive, use them for my own ends and selfish gains. But I don't live my life that this is the way I relate to God through rules. I live my life that the way I relate to God is through grace and faith and love and being led by the Holy Spirit. And that will help me overcome the sinful nature. That will help me stand and stay in freedom. True freedom implies a responsibility towards others because true freedom means I'm, I'm free now to love my neighbor. In fact, I don't think you can actually love your neighbor properly unless you're free in Christ. Even philanthropists, people who do incredible good for humanity who aren't in Christ, they do this good, but in their hearts there's a selfish element that hasn't been dealt with often. 
because you cannot adequately love somebody unless you're free, unless you know you're part of the family of God, unless you know you're a son and a daughter, and that I can love you and it costs me nothing. I can be free to serve in that space. It's interesting for me, in verse 15, after Paul's been quite theological, quite conceptual, the different means of salvation, the importance of faith expressing itself through love, why does he say, don't bite and devour one one another? Don't do this because you will destroy each other. Why does he add this very communal, community reality in this space? I think it's this. I propose two things. Because when you get into legalism, you're always comparing yourself to others. And if you can put them down, then you look better. And often when communities get stuck in legalistic forms of Christianity or legalistic forms of religion, a couple of things happen. One, because you're comparing and trying to just be a little bit better, you start destroying relationships because legalism will always destroy relationships ultimately. Because somewhere you start pointing the finger at what everybody else is doing wrong. That's what legalism will always do. Often sometimes it will start with a desire for purity and a desire for holiness, but it ends in pointing fingers. This language of bite and devour one another, the picture that always comes to my mind is, I don't know if you've seen a pack of wild animals attacking a carcass. You know, they're like, it's like this feeding frenzy or sharks feeding in a feeding frenzy. When a community gets stuck in legalism and they start biting one, each, one another. Now, Afrikaans happens to say this quite well. Any Afrikaans people, you, you have a picture of that? They, literally, it means you bite one another. But it's that, it's that snide chirping. It's those comments that people drop. Because when I get focused on legalism, it doesn't build relationship. It breaks relationship. And then we start biting and devouring, and then it says you end up destroying others. So you cannot use your Christian freedom to put others down, to sit in judgment on others because they can't keep the rules as well as you can keep the rules. That destroys a Christian community. Because that might have been what was happening in Galatia. The more legalistic people, the Jewish people, were probably saying to the Gentiles, you're not fine, and stop doing this, and start doing that, and don't behave this way, which is fine if you're three years old. But it's not fine if you're an adult trying to follow Jesus. And Paul comes and he says that the way you overcome that is you fulfill the whole law if you love your neighbor as yourself. So freedom implies the responsibility to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that builds the faith community. Worship team, you're welcome to join me. We can do a song at the end. There's something else, and sorry, I felt this during the worship to say this. There's something else that legalism does in the community is it creates a sense of entitlement. Because I've been following Jesus so long and I've kept all the rules. I've done everything right. And then we start going, but I deserve. Because I'm a better person. Or I'm a good Christian and I deserve. The truth of the gospel is we're all sinners. The ground at the foot of the cross is incredibly level. The picture, it's pictured for us in the story that Jesus tells of the prodigal son. Remember, you have the son who goes away and he lives in all kinds of debauchery. He lives in all kinds of sin. He comes home and the father, because God loves, the father embraces him, the father restores him. And then you have the older brother 
who, if you listen to the language with his father, I've never done anything wrong. I've kept all the rules. I haven't even asked you for this much, God. And a sense of entitlement builds. That too will alienate you from God. Because pride is also a sin. And so let's be careful that we take up this freedom privilege of loving one another well. So as we close off the message this morning, perhaps you've never come to faith in Christ because you've been trying to tick those boxes. You never quite get it right. This morning I'm here to tell you, you never will. Give up. Surrender to what Christ has done. Stop trying to live in your self-effort to please God. Start standing in what Jesus has done by putting his faith in you that he has paid for your sins because you can't. He will give you his Holy Spirit to help you live the way God that is pleasing to God. He will empower you to do that. But you have to surrender. And so when the service ends and we go into worship, the, the pastors and the prayer team will come up. And if that's you, you need to come to somebody and say, I need to put my faith in Jesus. I want to bow the knee. I want to surrender. I want to stop trying to keep all these rules. And I want to learn to live by grace and faith. I want to learn that gospel, that good news, to know what it means. But I'm also very aware that this letter was written to believers. This was written to people who were already justified. And there's this strong warning from Paul, stand firm, stand firm in grace and faith, stand firm in your freedom. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery, because it's a real danger in our Christian life that we come to faith in Jesus, and we love, and we, and we learn this, but that we drift back. We make our relationship with God all about the rules, and all about what is the right things to do, and if we get it right then we have a good day with Jesus. And if we get it wrong, then we don't. And so let us also, as Paul wrote to our brothers and sisters thousands of years ago in the churches of Galatia, also hear Paul's words. Stand firm. Stand firm in faith. Stand in your freedom. Don't be burdened by definitely not Mosaic law, but don't be burdened again by any other system of religious rituals and rules that become the primary means of how you stand in right relationship with God can never be primary. Primary is faith. Primary is I'm an adopted son. I'm an adopted daughter of God. And I'm in his family. And I live in a kingdom of love where I love him and I love others. That is primary. And let's guard that. Let's hear Paul's warnings that we don't alienate ourselves from what Jesus has done as well. Can I invite you to stand and we're going to pray. This morning, Lord Jesus, if there's anyone online, on radio, hearing the message, watching the message, anyone in this room who needs to surrender, who needs to come to faith, I pray that as you said in, in the Word of God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment. I pray you draw them by your Spirit to come to this place of faith. But I pray too for all of us who have walked with you for years, maybe a short while, maybe longer, who've lived this life of faith. Inspire us 
Empower us to let our faith express itself in radical love for one another, sacrificial love for one another, humble service to God, to each other, and to the world. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that lives in us, that helps me do, helps make possible what is impossible in myself. And so this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ, we stand and we receive more of your Holy Spirit. We invite your Holy Spirit to come and empower us to love, empower us to do the good things, the good works you've planned in advance for us to do. Help us to be ever vigilant of not adopting a Jesus plus gospel. Ever vigilant of not going back to rule keeping and self-effort, sinful self-effort. Help us to live the life that is led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. Thank you that it is for freedom, Jesus, that you have set us free. Thank you that we can rejoice that that burden and that yoke of slavery you lift off us. And maybe I need to do that this morning. If anybody has been caught under a yoke of legalism, I want to break that off you this morning in Jesus' name. Can you come to a place of faith and grace that serving Jesus won't be a burden, but it would be a joy, that it would be a pleasure and a delight. So as we approach the end of the year, Father, I pray anything we've picked up that's holding us back, that is a burden to us, we cast that aside so that we can rejoice in the freedom and rejoice in loving you and serving you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So if you need prayer for anything else, the prayer team and the pastors will be here to pray for you. Please do come to the front for those online. Please, if you have any specific prayer request, send that in to pray for me at Hatfield. We'll have a team that prays for that. And then if you are a visitor, if you want to know any little bit more about uh, Hatfield, please meet Pastor Letitia in the Connect Lounge, which is just in the foyer in the hall on the left on your way out. God bless you and keep you as you go into this week. May His face shine upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen.